Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. The burden of race and racism is a hard thing to put on a kid. Like, how do you explain to a nine-year-old that there's some people who are just going to hate you because of the way you look? Hey guys, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. In today's episode, we have Elijah Lawal, PR manager for Google and author of the book, The Clapback, Your Guide to Calling Out Racist Stereotypes. Elijah speaks about his hardship of growing up and feeling very different, which then became the catalyst for him writing his debut book, The Clapback, Your Guide to Calling Out Racist Stereotypes. Listeners, please note that we start all our conversations talking about death, but if this subject is triggering, then please do fast forward to roughly around the one minute mark straight after this intro. But wait, 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 wait. Review us because it does help us grow and it helps people like you find our podcast. Elijah, Lua Tosin. So you know how we always start. Talking about death. How do you feel about death? I'm not particularly scared of death. I think the only thing that worries me about death is the people that I will leave behind and how sad they would be. And, you know, one of the things that I always think about with my friends is no matter how frustrated we are with each other or whenever we have arguments, if anything were to happen and they or I were to pass away, no one's going to remember the random fight we had back in 07. We're going to remember the great times we had when we went to Copenhagen or we went to Toronto. So I would just love to leave my loved ones with great memories of our time together. Maya Angelou said, we often forget what people said and what they do, but we never forget how, how they, they make us, us feel. feel. Yeah. So speaking of feelings, let's get into your first chapter, shall we? Sure. Zero to ten. Tell me about growing up. Where were you? What was going on in your life? Your listeners who would have listened to the podcast with uh, Nels Abbey, you would know that some Afro-Caribbean families would foster out their children. So I was with a white family in Portsmouth, uh, Mandy and Charlie. I was really young and it wasn't for that long. And my parents were still very active in my life. But I remember being happy. I've heard you mention that you were aware that you were black prior to going into Nigeria. And was that because you were around a white family? It's hard to sort of pinpoint the exact moment that I realized I was black, but I think that just growing up and the fact that my parents were still very active in my life, the fact that we were Nigerian was made very clear to me at a very young age. This is who you are and what you represent. You did go into Nigeria at the age of six. Tell me about that. It was a massive culture shock because people would tease me. They'll call me Oyibo boy, which is Yoruba for white boy. And they don't mean it like I was acting white in quotes. They just meant like, you know, I came from, I came from London. Yeah. Or they'll call me Londona, Londona. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was all in sort of jest, but sometimes good because people attribute status to being a Londoner or being a Yankee. Yankee is if you came from America. So I was okay at school. I was quite popular because right. of the way that I spoke and, you know, being from London. But yeah, sometimes it didn't sit well. 
So regular listeners will know that I often ask my guests to send in a one-word answer or one-sentence answer about fondest memories or a story that they've heard or read. And at this age, you wrote a Nancy the Spider. So why did this have an impact on your life? I, I love reading. I've just always loved reading. When I was young, I just read anything that I could like, get my hands on. Um, first book that I ever read cover to cover was the Bible. What? The first ever book yeah. cover to cover was the Bible? The Bible. All 66 books. How old were you? Maybe eight. Why? So this version of the Bible was called the Good News Bible, and it had pictures in it. But I absolutely loved it, especially the book of Psalms, which is essentially a book of poetry. So I was fascinated by that. And it was just at home, you know, my parents were very religious. It was the most prominent book in my house. <laughs> there were like five Bibles just knocking about, <laughs> you know. Um, after that, I, I just loved stories and I loved learning about different cultures. You know, when I was at school in the library, I just picked up this book and it was like the tales of Anansi the Spider, Trickster God, who weaves stories, you know, he, he's the storyteller. Yeah, I just started reading stories about Nancy the Spider. Did you find yourself at that age telling stories yourself? Because yes. you're reading them, but were you <laughs> telling them? Yes, that actually got me interested in Nigerian myths and legends and like our gods. So people didn't know about these stories, so I would tell them the stories. I can't imagine, and I, and I want to imagine young Elijah <laughs> before even age 10 you gather around your friends and you telling them about Shongo yeah just telling them about it another thing that was very interesting my parents were obsessed with Bollywood obsessed and a lot of them at the time were also based around what's called like the Nagi and the Nagaina and that's people who can turn into snakes and then they had people who could turn into leopards as well so I would tell those stories as well. I was did a you, very odd kid. No, it wasn't. Oh, like, oh, this is so <laughs> fascinating. I'm just wondering, did you make up these stories or was it stories that you read and then you just regurgitated? The latter at first and then bit by bit, I would add like my own twist. So there's a place in Lagos called Victoria Island. The simple reason was because Nigeria was colonized by the British and Queen Victoria at the time, the island was named after her. I would make up stories about, you know, a woman called Victoria who drowned. And that's why it was called Victoria Island, because she drowned on the island. So I'll just put little twists on things. And that's how I started telling stories. Let's uh, go into your next chapter. We're now talking, what, 11 to 20? Yeah. What sticks out to you? The early part of that decade was actually, it was quite tough for me because I was a very nerdy kid. I am very nerdy. And I just, I found it hard to find my sort of people, my group of friends. And I think it was because, again, coming from England, there was that fascination with me. So I always, like, people would come and talk to me because they would want to hear my accent. And then by the time my accent sort of went more Nigerian, 
I kind of lost that thing that made me special. So I was kind of like, okay, like where do I fit in? I was also very, very religious. I spent a lot of time in church. So like outside of church, I kind of struggled to find my place. And then when I moved back to London, then I had an Nigerian accent moving back to London. And so then I had to kind of readjust as well. And there are just lots of things that I found hard because I would be teased again for things that we do differently. So in Nigeria, it's not uncommon to play football bare feet. It was always hot. It was lots of sand around. So when I first tried to play football at school, I would just take off my shoes and everyone would go, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, so there's just a kind of, there was an adjustment and that was quite hard. Another thing you wrote was Hardy Boys. Why did this have an impact? Hardy Boys, I remember I was just walking home and I popped into the bookshop and I remember seeing it there and there were just these two boys on the front cover and they were running away from a car crash. Opened it up and I read it really quickly and I just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. They're these two teenagers who are like out solving crime. First thing I thought was, my parents would never allow me to do that (laughs) at all. And all of those books at the time made me think like, what is wrong with white parents? Why are they just letting their kids like go off and do whatever? But I remember reading it, it was just fascinating. It was a world so far from mine. I loved that book. Did you and your friends at the time do your own adventures? No. No, you never went off to uh, try and fight crime? No, in Streatham? Are you kidding me? (laughs) No. In your book, you wrote when you were 15, I guess you were awakened, if that's even a right word to use, but do you know what I'm talking about? Mm. I was coming home from my friend's house one day and it was dark. I was just walking in Streatham. A car drove by and there were these three guys. One stuck his head out and just yelled, nigger at me I remember like looking around and going who's the nigger he's talking about oh he's talking about me and that feeling was moved from the naivete of youth to adulthood because there's one thing knowing something and then there's one thing experiencing it we continuously need to explain to white people in particular because racism is just not something that they experience. So they can consciously know about it and they can be allies to it, but it's just not something they're going to experience in the same way that you and I can be the biggest feminists in the world. But sexism is just completely different for us. We all have the story, unfortunately, of knowing when we were called a nigger. So the following days afterwards, when you went into school, did you tell your parents, like, how were you navigating? I had never told anyone until writing this book. Writing this book was the first time that I kind of articulated that. And I was certainly naive, but also a little bit lucky to have been able to go through the world with this blinders for as long as I had, because it is also like the burden of race And racism is a hard thing to put on a kid. Like, how do you explain to a nine-year-old that there's some people who are just going to hate you because of the way you look? 
And it's something that our parents explained to us. But yeah, until you fully experience it, it's, yeah, it's a hard one. In this chapter, were you continuously telling stories and writing? Yeah, just short stories and just giving it to my friends and just saying, hey, what do you think about this? Was there like a recurring character, do you recall? Yeah, I mean, like most nerds who didn't have the courage to go and talk to girls, a lot of my stories were about nerds getting girls, you okay. know? Um, <laughs> I can't remember who, who, who said it, but she's a famous actress. And she said, you know, the reasons why in these romantic comedies, it's always this glamorous, beautiful woman falling in love with like either an overweight guy or a guy who's not conventionally good looking is because these scripts are written by nerds who didn't have the bravery to go ask women out so they're like reliving their fantasies in the movies that they write and that struck a chord with me because when I was younger that was what I was doing it was always about a guy who's too shy to talk to a girl but ends up dating the girl you use this word a lot nerd it's not a derogatory... No, no. To the extent that um, people don't find it offensive, I, like, I, I would call myself a nerd even today. It's something I, I take pride in. I like being nerdy. I like... Um, What's your definition of a nerd? Just so we're all on the same page. Yeah, my definition of nerdiness is, is just someone who is probably a little bit more comfortable learning about things and going... Like, you can't just tell me something. I've got to go back and then find out all about it and then come back to you and go, oh, that thing you told me about, like, quantum physics? Oh, my God, do you know about, like, quantum entanglement and Schrodinger's cat and just, like, the onlooker principles? And, I, you know, I have to get into it. And to the point where I... You write a book. I write about, a book about... about when people call things out. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. It absolutely does make sense. So let's go into your final chapter. And I would love to talk about your book because fundamentally that is why we are here. Yeah, chapter three. What's going on in Elijah's world at this time? Going away to university was probably one of the best things that I could have ever done. For me, moving away from home, being free to just do whatever I want and <clears throat> not to be a cliche, but to find myself was great. You know, when I woke up on Sundays, I didn't have to go to church. You know, when I woke up on Saturday, I didn't have to vacuum the whole house and then wash the car. I was free to do whatever I want. It does sound, it sounds like you felt quite restricted. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was 23, 24 at that time. And I really just kind of wanted my own space, but I couldn't afford it. And my parents were very much like, you need to get on the property ladder as soon as you can. So I needed more money. And so I applied to all of the PR firms in London. And the first one that took me, uh, I joined in at a graduate as a graduate level and then just kind of worked my way up. And yeah, here we are today. Amazing. So before we jump into your book, let's talk about something you submitted, which is Case for Reparations. Yes. Talk to me. What, what is this? It is a very beautifully written article on The Atlantic Online, written by uh, an American novelist, Tanahisi Coates. He is a fantastic author. 
He's a beautiful orator. And he wrote this amazing article about why African-Americans should get reparations. He didn't just go because of slavery. He went deep, you know, he went and researched. And he even said, I didn't at first believe that we should get reparations. I had to go research this. And after going back and looking at it, he was like, yes, we should. And here is why. And he lays out the argument non-judgmentally, just factually. And so it's hard to read that article and walk away and go, yeah, I don't think black people should get reparations. <laughs> like, you know, it's very hard to do that. And I love... But I'm sure people still do. I mean, people still do. But I love arguments that are made almost not emotionally, but not you should do this because you made us feel this way, but you should do this because it's the right thing to do. If someone takes something away from you, you should be able to get that back. Well, speaking of back, when does this come about? And by the way, guys, you can't see, but I am holding Elijah's book, Clapback. From what I'm gathering, what you actually appreciate more than anything isn't necessarily race conversations, but rather romance mysticism. Even biblical, like everything that you seem to gravitate and seem to love insofar mm-hmm. as when it comes down to literature doesn't point me at this. No, in fact, in the intro to the book, I, I say, you know, writing about race just wasn't something that I was thinking about doing. So why did you do it? So with my job, I, I was moved to Dublin. Right. And it is very overwhelmingly white, but I could not help but feel different again, you know, and here I am moving to another country again. And, you know, when I walk into a restaurant, People would look at me, not kind of in a like, what's he doing here way, but in a like, oh, here's someone new. <laughs> and then I would look at them going, how are we in a restaurant in a city center and I'm the only black person, not even the only black person, the only person of color. So I became increasingly aware, but then also I became increasingly aware of the things that people think about black people because there weren't a lot of black people, you know? I remember the census taker in Ireland saying to me, oh, your English is very good. And I was like, yeah, I'm from England. Um, And also, Nigerians tend to be very, very fluent because English was our sort of standard base language. In fact, we had to learn Yoruba, Igbo, in school. And so I started researching why people think it, why it's continued being a part of the narrative. And I just thought, I've got to write this down. So you getting a lot of these sort of stereotypes and ignorant comments in Ireland Mm -hmm. made you go, why are they saying that? Being the very person you are, felt you needed to publish this. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for your own record, but Mm -hmm. rather for the benefit of... Of firstly, black people to be able to say, okay, this is why this is a common stereotype and this is why it's wrong but also for white people to start to unpick what they've been, excuse me, what they've been taught, what they've heard. Um, Because I do think it is a thing that is very prolific in in white culture. So for instance, I'm not Asian. I didn't grow up with a lot of Asian friends, but I don't automatically assume everyone who is Chinese knows karate. Like that's not something that, I didn't have to be told that not everyone who's Chinese can do Kung Fu. I didn't have to be taught that. 
But white people still have to be taught that just because I'm black doesn't mean I'm good at running. <laughs> you know, I do think that is something that is very prevalent in white culture. And so I really wanted, in particular, allies to be able to go, okay, we've got to unpick everything that society's taught us, that media has shown us, and this is why this is happening. When talking about race relations, and this is something that I myself often have to sense check, is the US-centric narrative. Mm -hmm. This book could have been read half the time mm -hmm. if I removed all the US references. Yeah, It seemed that there was more US context or references to help with said stereotype mm -hmm. or debunking it. Why? When we look at black culture, especially black culture as depicted in... The West. Yes. I see African-Americans and black people in Western Europe as the two big depictions. For better or worse, I'm not saying like that's how we should view it, but that's kind of what, what it gets viewed as. And so I wanted to address those two things. But also, it's a book that's written in English. And so the biggest countries where English is the major language is US and America. And, you know, with an eye on publishing, I wanted it to be published. It's funny you say that. And do you feel, as an author, you were granted, and I know the good literary agency, they're about underrepresented voices and really championing that. Mm. But do you feel like, this was the only book you would potentially have been green-lighted because, for some reason, being a person of colour, we have to talk about race. Mm. Did you feel like you had to write that? In a way, yeah. But it is frustrating. And, like, I love, as you can tell from this interview, I love reading about mythology. And I would love to see books from black writers around fictional mythical creatures you know we can write about that stuff too and we can write about our own mythology we don't only have to write about race so my next book will probably not be about race although there'll be a racial component to it because race and racism are now facts of life i would hope that i would get the same amount of interest not writing about race as I do writing about race. Let's actually talk about your book a little bit more. It has been out for just shy of a year, right? Mm -hmm. What hasn't been said about it that you feel ought to be said? I don't think I'm that hubristic. To... <laughs> so you don't read the reviews or comments and whatnot? I don't. I read the positive ones um, because, well, first of all, you, bring, you put something into the world. It's nice to hear that people appreciate it and like it. Mm -hmm. And it, it almost makes what you're doing worthwhile. But I don't read negative reviews for two reasons. The first one is because when I first started reading the reviews, it was, you know, even from an objective point of view, and I really tried to be objective, it was just like a couple of people didn't seem to get it. Right. So, you know, one review that I had was someone saying... Um, he used the fact that fear has been transmitted through genes in mice to explain why black people might be afraid of swimming. And I was like, no, that's the exact opposite of, of what I did. I said, if the argument was that fear could be transmitted through genes, then why am I not afraid of Egyptian cotton when my ancestors were made to pick cotton? You know, so I actually debunked that theory, but that person didn't seem to get it. 
But then also, I was just like, well, unless I can go to everyone's house who reads this and explain it to them, there's some people who just won't get it. And there are some people who won't like it. Yeah. So I just go, well, I just won't read those bad reviews. Is there any chapters for you, Elijah, that you want to speak about that you found interesting to write or maybe hard to write? The immigration chapter is probably my favourite because it allowed me to broaden the discussion past just black people. So we know we're talking about immigration at large. And basically what I do in this chapter is I do a stereotype of someone who gets to move to another country an exaggerated stereotype, because obviously this is not the experience of everyone. Someone who gets to move to another country, say Singapore, for instance, where there are lots of expats, lots of professional expats, and stereotype it against someone from Syria, in this case, a Syrian woman who moves with her children and the two experiences that they face. And the reason why I did such an exaggerated stereotype is because I wanted to put them as far apart and then have us look at those two scenarios and then call one person an expat and call one person an immigrant. Like those were the two extremes in order to say, this is why it's ridiculous to judge people based on the circumstances in which they come into the country. And I think they're just, there's some background work that we really need to do, especially if it's not our experience. But I promise you, no one is worse off for being more informed or better informed. We haven't spoken about success. Mm -hmm. What does that look like for you? It's happiness. Like, I'm so glad that I published this book, but I was so happy writing it. And even if this book had never been published, I would have still counted it as a success. Elijah, I want to conclude. Your book is absolutely rubbish. What's your clap back? You're probably not interested in being educated. <laughs> Touche. Well, guys, if you want to be educated, get the clap back, your guide to calling out racist stereotypes. And Elijah, apart from your own book, and this is how I do end, what one book would you gift, you know, to friends and family? The Gargoyle by Andrew Davidson. It's this beautiful story about love that's been reincarnated over generations and these two people who are destined to fall in love but are destined to suffer really dire consequences as a result of their love and how they keep finding each other over generations and how they're different people. So in one He's a Viking in another lifetime. They're Japanese and she's a princess. Um, in one, he's a mercenary, she's a nun. It's such a beautiful story. The Gargoyle by Andrew Davidson. Amazing. And how can the good listeners <laughs> find you on the World Wide Web? But what would you like them to do? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, Elijah underscore Lawal, uh, all of those um, sites. Get in touch. Uh, you can get the books online, in good bookshops, wherever. Um, to steal a phrase from my brother Nels Abbey in all non-racist bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, please do read it and 
you know, we don't always have to agree about everything. Even my favorite books, there are things in it that I like, mm, maybe that could have been different, but hopefully it gets you thinking differently about race, um, about black people, and yeah, just expands your knowledge. Well, Elijah, thank you very much for sharing your stories. Thank you for having me. And uh, guys, as always, do stay tuned for another episode and do give comment on this episode. Make us better, better, better. Today's episode was produced by Ade Bambala. Sound designed by Chris Arise. And... If you'd like to be featured on Stories That Stick, then please do get in touch.